Okay, well today uh, the topic I want to talk about is uh, why I'm not a Trinitarian. Or maybe you could say why we uh, don't believe that. Uh, many other churches uh, teach the doctrine of the Trinity and believe that this is uh, something that we should believe. Uh, we do not. And so we're kind of... Um, uh, we're kind of the oddball. We're the ones that stand out where uh, many Christians believe that this is uh, something that we should believe, and we say we don't. So I want to talk a little bit about why. Um, uh, first of all, this doctrine is not something that is taught in the Bible. Um, the terminology is not in the Bible. Uh, the word Trinity, you can search from cover to cover or pick up a good concordance, and you'll see that the word Trinity is never in the Bible. Uh, that by itself doesn't necessarily make something wrong. I mean, we use terms. We say God is omnipresent and omniscient, and those words aren't in the Bible. But we could say the same thing using biblical terms, you know. Um, when you... Uh, can't really say what you believe without using uh, non-biblical terms, then I think uh, there might be a little bit of danger there. Uh, not only the word Trinity, but even the, the way they explain it, um, which has never really made sense to me. And, and I've learned from some of the best. Um, I went to a Oneness Pentecostal uh, Bible college, but after that I went to a Baptist uh, seminary. And I had this, you know, this, my good professors there that were all Trinitarians, and I listened to them explain, and I discussed and debated and questioned, and uh, was left, you know, not at all convinced that this is something that um, we we should believe. Um, in fact, I, I guess I would say that um, they would actually acknowledge that this was not uh, something that. Uh, the early church believed that Peter and Paul believed. They, they readily acknowledged that this is a doctrine that developed over time. Uh, it was clearly finalized in a, a, the year 325 AD. That's when we had the Council of Nicaea. Uh, some would say the idea was around before then. It's not like they just got together one day and came up with it. But when the doctrine was Creedalized and finalized and said, this is, this is what the Trinity is and what we believe. That was around the year, it was, it was in the year 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. So if Jesus died in the year 30 or 33, there's a little bit of a debate, somewhere in the early 30s, uh, 325, that's almost 300 years later. Now, to just give you some perspective, our country is only 200 and some years old. I mean, our, the United States was founded in 1776. Uh, my, in fact, my brother was born in 1976, so he was a bicentennial baby. But, uh, you know, you think of today, we think of George Washington and the Civil War and the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that was, that was ages ago. You know, we don't feel like, uh, you know, that's our time. We feel like that's a long time ago, you know. And how much has changed in our country since the days of Washington and, and the, the founding fathers of our country? So this is even a greater time. And just the point I'm trying to make is, 
you know, it sounds, oh, 300 and something, that's still, that's close to Jesus. No, that's, that's a long time uh, for, for doctrines to change and things to develop. So, ultimately, we do not get our authority on what we believe from church history or from any council or uh, creeds that were uh, invented by man. Uh, we believe that the New Testament is sufficient. Well, the Bible is sufficient, but specifically the New Testament is what's more relevant to the church. We believe the Bible is sufficient to teach us what we need to know. Now, we don't diminish the working of the Spirit. You know, We believe God has given us His Word and His Spirit, but you don't usually get doctrinal information in the prayer room. You know, not saying God can't do that, but uh, we believe what he has given us in his word is sufficient. So we look to his word. Uh, so anyway, Trinitarianism teaches that uh, these are the words that they use. I'm going to tell you the terminology that they use. Uh, they say things like they believe that there's one God. Of course, they have to say that. The Bible you know, says that God is one. Uh, the the, the um, the statement of faith for the people of Israel was Shema Yisrael, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. We sing it a little bit, little different variation the kids sing in Sunday school. But um, listen, it means listen, Israel, pay attention. Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is one. And they were very adamant that God is one. So Trinitarians have to say that. Then at the same time, they say, but... He's three persons. Now, to me, that doesn't make sense. Either God is one God or there's three gods. Uh, but to say one God but three persons doesn't say a lot to, to most of us. Um, I'm kind of the opinion, I, I don't think the word persons is even a legitimate word. Because the way that we think, if I say I'm a person, Brother Jason's a person, Brother Mendoza's a person... That's three people. Now, they don't say God is three people because, well, that sounds, you know, like polytheism, multiple gods. So they use the word persons, but what, what exactly does that mean? You know, um, it's not at all clear. But that's what they teach. God, uh, there is one God, but he is three persons. So. Uh, and they say that uh, they, they call the three persons of God, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. Now, again, to me, the math doesn't add up. You have three persons. I would say people. They say three persons. The name of the first person is God, the father. The name of the other guy is God, the son. And the name of the third person is God, the Spirit. And yet, here's one person. His name is God something. There's another person. His name, and yet, at the end of the day, they still say that's only one God. Again, to me, the math doesn't add up. Uh, you know, in the, opinion, in the opinion of some of us, it's, it's a bunch of statements that just don't make sense and don't add up. They say this, they say that, they say that. And at the end of the day, many people don't even understand exactly what it means. So, Now, I'm not saying we're going to completely understand everything about God. In fact, I'm going to talk about uh, where the Bible does use the word mystery. It doesn't say 
the Trinity is a mystery. In fact, I'll go ahead and give away. I'll give it away now. But it says, First uh, Timothy 3 and 16, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Okay? The, the, the mystery is how God could be, become a man, be a human being, live in a human body, and still be God and fill the universe. God did not leave heaven empty when he came to earth and became a man. He did not vacate his throne. He was somehow, and, then, and that's the mystery. That's the big, I, don't, I can't explain that. Okay? How he could be a man and yet still fill the universe um, is beyond me. But that's what the Bible does teach. The Bible does not say God is a trinity. The term God the Father is in the Bible, but the other two are not. The term God the Son is not in Scripture. The term God the Spirit. In fact, the Bible many times calls Jesus the Son of God, not God who is the Son. Okay? They flip or they, 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 they take the biblical, I think it's about 45 times, calls Jesus the Son of God. And they take and flip it around and use a different term that, again, it's not biblical. So, um, so the question, the, the, the terminology is not biblical. The statements that they make are not biblical. And in my opinion, actually contradicts some scriptures. But is their idea biblical or not? Well, that's where the problem is. Because they're using terms and defining them in ways that only they understand. You don't know what they mean by it unless you go talk to them. And the truth of the matter is, it differs from one Trinitarian to the next. Uh, I was surprised when I was in Bible college, um, Brother Seagraves, who was the big theology teacher there at Christian Life College, uh, when we took, I think it was Theology of the Church, he actually had a, a booklet that we had to read that he quoted many, many Trinitarians that expressed their view in a way that most of us wouldn't have much objection, except for the fact that they use the word Trinity and things like that. But the way they explained their view of God it was very close to what we believe as one as Pentecostals. Uh, there are others that actually see three people, one, two, three, you know. Um, and so that, of course, uh, we, would, we would obviously reject. But even if some Trinitarians can use the word Trinity and still believe something close to us, um, I still reject the doctrine and I reject the terminology because it is not biblical and I believe it is unnecessary and I believe it is something that was added by man later. Personally, I, I, I think it was probably uh, influenced by Greek thought and not by biblical thought. Uh, where uh, as, the, as the church grew and slowly became the, the, the uh, entity that was later known as the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of pagan elements were added in and, and um, along the way. And uh, many people that were coming in were coming from Greek ideology and philosophy. And sometimes they may be intelligent people, but uh, they didn't leave all of their previous ideas behind. Some of them brought these things in and began to try to find a way to make the Bible work with these other ideas that they already had. We talked about that when we talked about the uh, the doctrine of hell, and how I I said I believe that uh, they uh, 
what later became the standard Christian teaching on hell and eternal conscious torment and this idea of a soul and what is a soul. And I'm sorry, specifically the, the issue of um, that we are all inherently immortal. That idea comes from Plato, does not come from Scripture. So I think that that is also what has happened uh, with this. Um, the Bible does not teach that God is one, yet he is at the same time three. Instead, and what we're going to see, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God, and yet Jesus is distinguished from God at the same time. That's the mystery. Um Jesus is identified as God several times. We'll look at some here in a little bit. And yet God is talked about as someone other than Jesus. Jesus prayed to the Father. Uh, Jesus uh, loved the Father. Jesus talked about going back to the Father and things like that as if this was someone different. Well, uh, as I said, when God became a, a man, he did not leave heaven empty. So we could speak of God in the incarnation as a human being living and walking on this earth. Uh, John says in, in, the, in the gospel of 1 John, we touched him, we handled him, we actually were around him. He was a genuine human being. Uh, and yet we can speak of God outside of the incarnation. Now if that word throws you for a loop, uh, incarnation just means God becoming a man. Incarnate. Carne is Spanish for flesh, when God took upon himself humanity and became a man. Now, as much as I uh, reject Trinitarian uh, theology, ideology, terminology, doctrine, and things like that, uh, I also have a, uh, a problem, I guess I would say, with the... Some, some of our people have such a simplistic... Uh, view of uh, oneness view of God where they don't want to acknowledge where the Bible has legitimate distinction between Jesus and God, Jesus and the Father. And when you ask some of these people, well, why did Jesus pray? They don't have a good answer. Or they'll say things like, well, to set an example for the rest of us, he didn't really need to pray because he was God. Um, and yet we see that uh, uh, the Bible shows a definite distinction, and we need to recognize that. So, again, we, we, we have problems when we take just uh, parts of the Bible and reject others, and we need to consider everything that the Bible has to say. Okay, if you have a Bible, let's, uh, we're going to go through some scriptures here. We can go first to Isaiah uh, chapter 7. And I want to start with, the topic here, Jesus is God. Uh, we're going to see that God himself is going to become a man. Uh, we read a lot in the Old Testament where uh, they are waiting for a Messiah. They are waiting for a Savior. I'm sorry, Isaiah 7, and we're going to look at verse 14. So we see a lot about um, this Messiah that they're waiting for. And yet in a few places, we're going to see that this Messiah that they're waiting for is going to be none other than God himself. 
for instance, in Isaiah 4, 7 and 14, uh, this was a prophecy that was first relevant in Isaiah's day, but we see later had ultimately had application to Jesus Christ. And he says, 7 and 14, uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. Now, we're going to read in the book of Matthew where there's a, we're going to expound upon that. But just keep that in mind. First of all, this is a virgin conceiving. Now, that does not happen. Okay. So this person that is prophesied that is going to be born will have no earthly father. Because God himself was the father. God provided uh, the male half. You know, we in Bible school, we talk and debated about, you know, the sperm and the egg. Because uh, the Bible actually uses the word concept, conceive. In the book of Luke, it says, you will conceive. And we know what the definition of conception is. Furthermore, Luke was a doctor. He knew what the word meant. And so he was conceived the way that every other... A child is conceived where there's a sperm and an egg. They're joined together and you have an embryo. But there was no man to supply the male half. And I'm of the opinion God himself became that and joined himself to the egg of Mary. And now you have a human being that is completely God, fully God, truly God, and also is completely human as well. Uh, we often say Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. I, had somebody, I heard somebody saying we shouldn't use those terms because it sounds like he's 200%. We should say he was fully God and fully man or truly God and truly man. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. So go down a couple more chapters. Uh, also in Isaiah to uh, chapter 9. Uh, Isaiah 9 and 6 and as well as verse 7. Again, this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And Isaiah 9 and 6, and it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. So first we're talking about a child being born, a human being, a child, and he's going to be a son. And the government shall be on his shoulder. He's going to be a leader. He's going to be a king. And his name will be called, now look at this, a human being is going to be born, a child born. But his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he is going to reign over the throne of David. He's the, 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 uh, the son of David that we're waiting for. So, at the same time, he is called a child and a son in the same exact verse, verse 6. He is also called the mighty God and the everlasting Father. Again, how can you be father and son at the same time? How can you be a child being born and yet be called the mighty God? Well, I don't know. That's the mystery. The mystery is not how many persons are in the Godhead. You know, the mystery is not, is there a trinity? The mystery is here, Jesus is a genuine human being, and he's the mighty God. Jesus is the Son, and he's the everlasting Father. Now, Trinitarians will say Jesus is not the Father. They say very clearly, they say that, 
The Son is God, but the Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. And we need to keep these things separate. Well, here the Bible just called Jesus the Son and the Father all in the same verse. Anyone tells you Jesus is not the Father, you take them to Isaiah 9, 6. Okay? Okay, now the, uh, the one that we read a minute ago about the virgin conceiving and all that. Let's go, to Ma- let's go to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1. Let me see, I'll start reading at verse 18. Matthew 1.18. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, she was engaged, betrothed, is an old English word, uh, fiance, okay? But before they came together, before they had marital relations, it says, she uh, was found, discovered to be with child. It's a nice way of saying pregnant. Mary was pregnant. From the Holy Spirit. Now let me just pause here again. Which one of the three persons is the father of Jesus? Oh, God the Father. Well, here it says he's the Holy Spirit is his father. What do you do with that? He is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, you know, we don't believe Jesus had two daddies. We don't believe in that kind of stuff, Okay. We believe the Father and the Holy Spirit are the same person. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and did not, did, uh, did not want to put her to shame, was going to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel appeared to him and he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Here it, he, it repeats it again. Okay, verse 20. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Twice it says this conception took place by the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in genetics or biology to know the person that causes the conception. That is the father. Okay. She will bear his son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. You guys see that? Verse 21, 21, 22, I'm sorry, 23, one of them. Okay, I'm sorry, yeah, 23. um, All these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. My little preview of the scripture stopped at verse 21. So that's where I made a mistake. So, again, a child is going to be born by Mary. And the angel says, we're going to call him Emmanuel. That was not his proper name. His proper name was Jesus. But uh, people were called many things. You know, uh, Jacob was called Israel and Jacob at the same time. Uh, Jesus called Peter Simon. Uh, his name was Simon. He called him Peter, things like that. So, but he is also going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what he is. Jesus is God with us. God himself became 
Amen. You guys see that? Now you don't have you don't have this in the Old Testament. That's why nobody in the Old Testament believed in the Trinity. That's why the Jews did not believe in the Trinity. This distinction started when God became a man. When God added the incarnation. Now that God became a man in the incarnation, you have God that fills the universe, if there is a universe or whatever it is, he's everywhere. And then you have God in the incarnation as this man living on this earth. Now you can make a distinction. We can talk about God here and God here. It's all God. But now you have this distinction going on. And that's why you do not see this in the Old Testament. That's why the concept of the Trinity didn't exist. No one heard of it before. Okay. Okay, now let's also go to, uh, well, you know what, I'll read some of these just, just for the uh, sake, save some time. You can write the verses down. Revelation 21, uh, uh, starting at the beginning, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had, pa- the first earth, oh, try to say that, had passed away and there was no more sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Okay. So. uh, When Jesus. Now Jesus was lived on here on this earth for. About 30 years. There's a little bit of debate exactly how old he was when he died. Around 30 years, maybe 33 years. He ascended into heaven. But he's coming back and he's going to live among us. And the book of Revelation says, when he returns and we are with him, that will be God himself among us. Okay? I'll read some more. Romans 5 and 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And I'm sorry, Romans. Okay, I'm sorry. No, the point I want to make here in Romans, uh, it says just as. um, Let me see Romans 5, uh, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as uh, by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteousness. Uh, The point here is that um, God had to become a man to take care of the sin problem. Okay? God as a spirit. You guys with me? A spirit could not die on the cross. A spirit could not bleed and give his life and take our place and take our punishment and be a substitution for us as a spirit. He had to become a man to go to the cross, to take the punishment that you and I deserve and to die in our place. If he's going to be a substitute for us, what happened on the cross, every one of us deserved that. That's what we deserve because of our sin and our rebellion and our disobedience. But God is so awesome and wonderful and full of love. He took that beating for us. 
But he couldn't do that as a spirit. He had to become a man, live in a body, take on genuine, full human existence to take our place as our substitute. A man had to come and die. A spirit cannot be a sacrifice. Okay, moving on. Jesus is that God-man. I think we've already seen that clear enough, but we're going to look at a few more. Um, Romans 9 and 5. We're just going to look at a, a, a few verses in Scripture that say point, point blank refer to Jesus as God. Some people say, well, the Bible doesn't actually say that Jesus is God. Well, here's a few verses that say that. Not just one. Romans 9 and 5. Um, now, sometimes some of these read differently in different translations. I think I'm, re- I'm reading here from the ESV. So if yours sounds a little different, just compare it in another translation. To them, be- talking about the Jews, he says, to them belong the patriarchs. Uh, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ... The Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, the most natural way to understand what it's saying and to translate that into English is that Christ is God over all. Amen. Does your translation say that? Okay. Okay, Christ is that God. Um, Colossians 2 and 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For in him dwells all the fullness of Colossians 2 and 9. Uh, King James says Godhead, and that's that word can be problematic because that uh, that's a word Trinitarians use sometimes. And what exactly is a Godhead? You know, I don't know. Uh, my translation here says the fullness of deity, the fullness of Godness, Godhood, God. In Him dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. Translation probably says something similar. Um, Hebrews 1 and 8. Now here Hebrews is quoting, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 45. But um, he applies this passage to Jesus. Hebrews 1 and 8, it says, But of the Son, he says, now the Son here is Jesus, nobody debates that. Okay, Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So here uh, is the book of Hebrews quoting the book of Psalms where the son is called, point blank, is called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, if it was unclear who he's talking to in the Psalms, it's clear here in Hebrews because he says to the son, he says this. You guys see that? Yeah. He says this to the son, 
your throne, O God. No, you didn't see it? Okay. <laughs> your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, now let's look at some passages in the Gospel of John. We'll look at a few different passages here in the book of John. John is interesting, uh, the Gospel of John, because um, the Gospel of John has some of the strongest oneness passages in the Bible, uh, identifying Jesus as God, and yet it also has some of the strongest distinction where Jesus is distinguished from God or looked at as separate from God. And I think John lays out the whole issue right at the beginning in verse 1. Uh, it was John. Uh-huh. John what? Oh, we're going to start in John 1.1. 1, 1. Okay. Yeah. But I was just kind of mentioning, you know, the book of John is um, has really strong oneness passages and yet some passages that seem, seem to show some of the strongest distinction between Jesus and God. Uh, I was reading one commentary where, where the guy said it was his opinion um, that John intended that the entire gospel be read in light of the first verse, John 1 and 1. We interpret everything else by means of this. Okay, John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I, when I was a uh, junior high teacher, I had my students learn this in Greek. Okay. In Greek, enarche en halagas, kai halagas en prastanteon, kai theos en halagas. So, here's the point. Okay. We're all in agreement. We're going to see later uh, in verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And it's very clear the word is Jesus. Nobody debates that. Okay. So. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. Now, if I said I went to the grocery store with my wife. I'm not my wife. To be with, you've, there's a distinction. There's two. Okay? I mean, that's with. You can't be with. You don't say I'm with myself. There's a distinction. And yet, immediately, and the word was God. Okay? This, this is the mystery. Not the Trinity. Okay? Jesus is distinguished from God. And identified as God, all, all in the first verse. You read the rest of the Gospel of John in light of this. There are passages where you see Jesus saying, Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. You know, these, 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 uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These very strong passages identifying him as God. Well, that's what it says. The Word was God. Then you see passages where Jesus talks about 
loving the Father, praying to the Father, the Father is greater than I, and all these things that distinguish him from God, well, that's right here. He's identified as God and distinguished from God. Don't ask me to explain that. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we need to accept that the Bible teaches that we may or may not understand. But we don't go invent all kinds of other things and tell everybody, you got to believe all this other stuff, but it's a mystery. But you just have to believe it because this is what all Christians believe. No, 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 no. If the Bible says something that is a mystery or an enigma or is beyond human comprehension, well, I've got to accept it if the Bible said it. Don't tell me I have to say to be a Christian, I have to use the word Trinity, that I have to say God the Father and God the Son, and say all kinds of things that the Bible never said, or else I'm not, I mean, and that's what some, many of them believe, that if you don't believe and confess their doctrine, which Peter and Paul never heard of, they say, well, you're not, you're not, a, you can't be a Christian because the church has for many years taught this. Well, what about the first 300 years? What did they teach? They taught what Peter and Paul taught. Okay. You guys follow me okay so far? Amen. All right. There you go. She landed safely. Okay. Okay, so John 1, 1, very, very powerful. That, I think this one passage is the key to understand. And, and I mean, there's other passages that say similar things, but John lays this out right at the beginning, his first verse. The word was with God. But the word was God. Now, if John were a Trinitarian, if John was a Trinitarian, a good Trinitarian, we would expect him to say, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was also God. Okay, that's how, that's, the Trinitarian reads this, and that's how they understand it. In the beginning was the Son, the Son and the Father together, this one is God, and this one is God. It doesn't say that, Okay. It just is God. In the beginning, was the, he was with God. For them, I would say, they, they change the definition of God in the middle of the verse. Because they say, with God, oh, that means with God the Father. But when it says the word was God, they say that means God the Son. You guys follow that? They change the definition of God in the middle of the verse. I'll repeat it. I repeat myself a lot. In the beginning was, okay, the word was with God. They say he was with God the Father. The word was God. He was God the Son. You see that? The word God is, is twice in the verse, and they, they have it meaning two different persons. Up here it means God the Father. The second time it means God the Son. You don't see that in John. You don't see that here. It's God. There's only one God. He is God, he's not God. He is God, he's not God. All at the same time. Identification and distinction. Okay? Okay. Um, I'll just read a couple of these here. You don't have to turn. But John 10 and 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. 
the Jews got mad. He said, I and the Father are one. Now, Trinitarians say, well, you know, he meant one the way, you know, unity. Not that he was identifying himself as the Father. But as we continue to read the passage, we have to look at how did the original audience understand his statement. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, they understood he's claiming to be the Father. Because it says, when he said that, they picked up stones, they were going to stone him. And Jesus asks him, he says, I've done all, verse 32, I've done all these good works. For which of these good works do you stone me? And they says, it's not because of the things you did, but because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. They understood I and the Father are one to mean I am God. That's, that's, that's how they, that's not how Trinitarians, you know, they say, well, it means one in unity, you know, not one as in one. And they debate about the meaning of the word one and all kind of stuff. But that's really irrelevant when you just continue to read the passage. How did they understand what he was saying? He was claiming to be the father. Okay. Um, John 14 and verse 7. Um. 7 through 10. John 14. We're, 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 we're going to be in. Yeah, we're, we're, we've been in John for a little while. We're going to look at some passages here. Yes. In verse 30, that's Jesus speaking. If you have a red letter Bible, it should be in red. Okay. John 14 and 7. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, now this is where some people say, well, look at, I mean, he's talking about the father as if that's some other person. Again, remember John 1, 1. He's identified as God. He's distinguished from God. But he's talking about the father, this, the father, that. And the disciples, they say, you know, well, we want to see the father also. You know, we've seen you. Let's show us the father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and, and we'll be happy. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you don't know who I am? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now, again, Trinitarians say, well, you know, one in unity and things like that. You know, when a, when a couple are married, we are one in unity. But as much as, you know, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I could say, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen my wife. I mean, we're, we're still different people. And sometimes we have different ideas, you know. He is going beyond saying we are one in unity. They're not one like the three musketeers. He's claiming to be the father again. Remember, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He will be called the, the, mighty, the, uh, the mighty God and the everlasting Father. So there's not just one, but multiple passages identifying Jesus not only as God, but specifically as the Father. One more passage here in John, John 20 and 28. Still chapter 14. No, 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 John chapter 20. John 20 and verse 28. Uh, but a couple verses before, you've heard the story of Doubting Thomas. 
But Thomas is saying, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to believe in him until I actually touch him and feel and know for sure you guys aren't seeing a hallucination or a mirage or something. I want to touch him and actually know this is the Jesus that uh, we were because Jesus had died and they had been resurrected. And so finally, doubting Thomas sees him. He says, here, come here, touch, put your hand in my side. This is where they put the spear. I was up on the cross. They put the spear. It was right here. That's where, you know, you can feel the hole. It's still there. You can see the nail prints in my hands. And Thomas was blown away. All he could do, uh, John 20 and 28, Thomas answered him and he said, my Lord and my God. Now, don't think of this. In, 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 in the way people say, oh, my God, today, he was <laughs> he would never use God as a as a uh, as a wow. OK, they had too much respect for God to you. Oh, he just said, like, oh, my goodness. Wow. It really is. No, no, he was calling him God, my Lord and my God. Now, no, Jesus didn't say, OK, Thomas, you went too far. You messed up. No, no, no. He says, have have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He did not rebuke Thomas. He didn't say you got it wrong. He accepted what he said. He called Jesus my Lord and my God. So those are some passages clearly identifying Jesus as God. Because again, some people say, well, the Bible never actually says that. Um, now, he didn't. Some people say, why didn't Jesus say, you know, talk about it more. Well, because he was humble. He didn't want to go around bragging, you know, let me tell you who I am. You know, no, but in a few very clear places, we see Jesus uh, clearly identified as God. So now we're going to look a little bit at uh, the distinction where Jesus is distinguished from God. Uh, Jesus had limitations. Uh, the, the song that the kids, one of the songs the kids sing on Sunday mornings, you know, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. God doesn't grow. And he grew. I mean, I could see, you know, growing as a baby becoming, but he grew in wisdom. Get ready for this. Jesus was not born knowing everything. Don't think of a little baby, you know, in the manger sitting upright and, you know, speaking. And No, he had to learn to talk. I'm sure he soiled his diapers and mama had to change them. He took upon himself everything that it means to be human. And in doing that, he took upon limitations. Now, the classic passage on that is Philippians uh, 4. I'm not going to go there right now, but... I think I had the notes somewhere. I'm sorry, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 9, where Jesus humbled himself. We're not going to go there. Um, but Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. He took upon the form of a servant. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Um, okay, he calls God my God. I'm going to read some of these. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to mention them and read them. Matthew 27 and 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus is on the cross. He cried out with a loud voice saying, uh, this is it written in Aramaic and then translated, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus called the Father my God. Matthew 27, 46. Okay? Jesus calls God my God. John 20 and 17. John 20 and 17. Uh, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brother, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Jesus calls God his Father and his God. Also in Revelation 3 and 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out of the temple. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God. I think that's four times in one verse. Jesus calls God my God. Dios mío. <laughs> Pero no es, oh, Dios mío. No, no, no. <laughs> no es así. Es my God belonging to me. My God. Ephesians 1 and 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The God of Jesus. Jesus has a God. He prayed to that God. We do not believe his prayers were a charade or just a, a, an example. He genuinely prayed and genuinely. And the Bible says he was heard in that he feared. I think Hebrews says that. They were genuine prayers. He was genuinely heard. He, as a man, he prayed to God. Again, I mean, I can say this a thousand times, but it all comes down to Jesus is identified as God. He's distinguished from God. As a man, he can pray to the Father. It says the, uh, the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. To love, you have to have two people. I mean, I guess you could say you love yourself, but that's not, what it, that's not what it's saying. That's not the point. He prayed to the Father. He loved the Father. He was a man. He was distinct from the Father. There were things he didn't know. Um, in fact, I don't, I don't have the notes here, but uh, in one place when he's talking about the second coming, he says, of that day and of that hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son but only the Father. Jesus Christ says, I don't know when the second coming is. It says that in the Bible. I should have had the notes. I could prove it to you, but I'm telling the truth. You can look it up later. He says, of that day and hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels, not even the Son, only the Father. As we saw in Luke, he grew in wisdom. He learned things. As a man, he was limited. He was distinguished from God. And yet, he has called God, he has identified as God, he accepted worship, and things of that nature. He loved God and God loved him. Uh, I'll just read a couple quick. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. 
John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. John 14, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Yeah, many times in John. I read a whole bunch of them. In uh, John 15 and 9, as the Father have loved me, so I have loved you. So, it's crucial that we recognize all of this distinction arises from the, genu- from the humanity. When God became a man, that man is, the, is called the Son of God. Okay? Because a genuine conception took place. Sperm and an egg, you have an embryo. The male, the father of this child was God. The human part came from the body of Mary. We have a new being. He is God. He is man all at the same time. Okay? This is not multiple gods. This is God as a man in the incarnation and God outside of the incarnation. So, when I see the Bible talks about Jesus praying to the Father, I have no problem with that verse. It's not a, something that I struggle with and pull my hair out and what do I do with it, okay? As a man, he's distinguished from God all day long, over and over and over, many, many times. Bring them all. Jesus prayed to the Father, no problem. He said the Father is greater than I, no problem. The God of Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. The Lord said unto my Lord. All these many, many passages that show a distinction between Jesus and God, the Bible's full of them. We're not going to try to explain them all away. They're there. As a man, he was distinct from God. Okay? It was in adding humanity that brought about the distinction. That's why you don't see this in the Old Testament. You don't see this before Bethlehem. You don't see the Son of God. Okay? If you do see any things referring to Jesus, they're prophetic about him coming one day. We don't actually see Father and Son in the Old Testament. Okay, now let's talk just a little bit about the Holy Spirit, the third person. So, Trinitarians will love to take you to all these passages that show the distinction between Father and Son. We have no problem with those, as I've tried to demonstrate here. We recognize that. Tell them, show me where, show me, I saw the Son praying to the Father, the Son loving the Father. Show me the Spirit loving the Father. Show me the Spirit and the Father talking to one another. One time in the whole Bible. Show me this distinction that you see. We, we, distinction between Jesus and God all day long. Yes. Show me the distinction between the Spirit and the Father or the Spirit and the Son. You're going to have a much harder time. Simply, the Holy Spirit. God is holy. 1 Peter 1 and 16. It is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1 and 16. Yes, 1 16. You know, I, I guess I can, I can give you guys a list of the scriptures later if you didn't write them all down. <laughs> or I could just send you my notes. Okay, and then God is a spirit, John 4, 24. 
God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, God is holy. God is a spirit. Do you see where we're going here? God is holy. God is a spirit. God is a holy spirit. This is not another person. Okay? And sometimes the Bible says the spirit of God. Just like it says the son of God. And that's a world of difference between saying God who is the spirit. Or second person or third person. I mean, I can speak of my spirit in the abstract, in the third person. One day my spirit will leave my body and go to heaven. Hopefully. If I serve God and, you know, don't mess up. Eat my vegetables. (laughs) I can speak of my spirit in that abstract sense, but it's not another person. It's not somebody else. It's my spirit. Okay? When the Bible talks about the spirit of God... God is holy or the Holy Spirit. It's not some other person. It's the spirit of God. The same spirit of God you see in the Old Testament. This Genesis 1, the spirit of God is there hovering over the waters and he created the world. Okay, so again, we never see the spirit praying to the father, talking to the father, loving the father. You don't see the same distinction this clear distinction you see between father and son. It's clear. Yes. Why don't you... If, if they're all three persons and they're all equal and they're all God and they all have been God all the way back into eternity forever, why don't you see the same distinction between the Spirit? Now, they have a handful of places they may like to take you, but it's not so clear as it is with the, with the Son and the Father, with the Spirit and the flesh. And we don't see it in the Old Testament. In our perspective, yes, there is a distinction. Jesus is distinguished from God. One guy said it this way, and I said it a minute ago if you guys heard me. In one sense, Jesus is God. In another sense, he is not. Now, that's scary for us to say. But what are you going to say? He's distinguished from God. He prayed to God. He didn't know things. From one perspective, he is other than God. And yet at the same time, he's identified as God. That's what we have to wrestle with. And that's what will answer pretty much uh, most, most of the, the issues that you see in Scripture. Also, we saw the Holy Spirit is identified as Jesus' Father. We saw it in Matthew, but we also see it in Luke. Luke 1 and 35. You can go ahead and turn and look at this one. Jesus is one at the same time, both God and other than God, all at the same time. Luke 1 and 35, here where uh, the angel is um, talking about uh, telling Mary that she is going to, this is before she was pregnant, that it's going to happen, he's telling her. Uh, Luke 1 and 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And one of the other verses there in Luke, it actually says you will conceive 
as I mentioned earlier. But we see both in Matthew and in Luke where we're talking about the conception that took place in Mary. In both Matthew and in Luke, the person causing this conception is the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now ask any Trinitarian who's the father of Jesus. They're going to tell you it's the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And they say, don't, don't confound the persons. We have to keep the three persons separate. Well, the Bible mixes them up here. Because we have the Spirit is the Father of Jesus. And it doesn't stop there. The Bible talks about the Spirit of Christ. Uh, look, at, look at Romans 8 and 9. Okay, Romans 8 and 9. And Paul writing to the Christians at Rome. He's talking about the spirit and the flesh in, in this passage here. And then he says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If, everybody say if. You are in the spirit if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, Christ, he does not belong to him. So here in the same passage, he says, you need to have the spirit of God. But if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Well, come on, Paul. Aren't you, you know, don't you know the doctrine of the Trinity? Three, the persons are separate. Don't mix them up. Is it the spirit of God or is it God the spirit or is it the spirit of Christ? Well, for us, there's no problem. It's the same person. We receive the spirit of Jesus. We receive the, sp the spirit of God that was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. The spirit of Christ when he lived and walked on this earth. The Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost. How many spirits are there? The Bible says there's one spirit. Okay, another passage also mentions spirit of Christ. 1 Peter 1.11 1 Peter 1, let me see. Actually, let's look at 10 and 11. Here, this is, this is interesting. Well, let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Um, concerning, with regard to the salvation that we have, that we're experiencing as Christians, he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was uh, to be yours, the prophets searched and they, they were interested in learning about the salvation that we have. Inquiring the prophets in the Old Testament, okay, Elijah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those guys, they were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So Peter says the spirit that was in the prophets in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, that came upon the prophets and allowed them to prophesy, he calls that the Spirit of Christ. Okay? Same Spirit. Peter, you're not a good Trinitarian either. 
You're mixing up the persons. That's God the Holy Spirit. That's not the Spirit of Christ. I'm being sarcastic. Okay. Okay. So, in conclusion, this is why I must reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, even though, as I mentioned earlier, some Trinitarians explain what they believe in a manner that is really close to what we believe, and I don't have a problem with their idea. Some, some, underline some, okay? Not all of them, but there are some that explain their... But they continue to use the, the, these, these terminologies and, and statements that are not found in Scripture that uh, were the product of man, that were developed many hundred years after uh, the, the founding of the church and the time of Jesus. And I reject the terminology, but uh, as I said, only some of them have that idea. Many of them have an idea of God that um, is very different from what we believe. So uh, we do not see a son of God in the Old Testament. And that, that's that's where, you know, if we they can kind of debate on how is God one and three and, and all that. Ask them point blank. Um, you know, do you have do you have this distinction before Bethlehem? If they have this distinction back in the Old Testament, then they're imposing a view on the Old Testament that nobody in the Old Testament had. The Jews didn't believe in the Trinity. I mean, they wasn't there. You know, we believe. Um. Uh, the Bible is adamant in the Old Testament. God is one, God is one, God is one. Now when he becomes a man, and, and, and now that you have God in the flesh, and God outside of that, now you can talk about God here and God there. Now this distinction arises. But uh, we believe the distinction began at Bethlehem, and it's all tied up in the incarnation of God becoming a man. Okay? And in that way, Jesus is both identified as God and distinguished from God all at the same time. And if you keep that in mind, Jesus is God, but he's distinguished from God. That will answer most of the problem passages that you run across. Not every single one, but many of them. Uh, read them in light of, go back to John 1.1. Read them in light of that over and over and over. And remember, that is what... The Bible says is a mystery. As we read, 1 Timothy 3.16. Okay. 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels and all that. That's where the mystery is. God becoming a man. So they cannot. You know, man cannot invent his own doctrine that the Bible doesn't teach. And then say, well, it's a mystery. Well, it's a mystery because it only exists in your head. You know, uh, what the Bible says is a mystery or beyond our, our understanding, I will confess, but not the words of man that were added, um, that were not in Scripture. So, I hope I covered everything. Any questions? Anything I missed? That was pretty good. Brother Ted? Seems good to me. Okay. Well, and hopefully, you know, if you guys ever, if you ever talk to people that... Are Trinitarians that have this belief, you know, you can know what they believe, what they actually say, and, and, and how to respond to it. Okay, 
don't let them just take you to a passage that shows Jesus prayed to the Father and think they've, they've disproved what we believe. Not at all. We embrace that. We acknowledge that. Jesus is distinguished from God. Again, now some of our people uh, have a, uh, don't do that, you know, and, but that, that's not what oneness Pentecostals have traditionally believed. But some people, just in their limited understanding, have this idea, Jesus is God, period, you know. No, Jesus is God, but there's also God out. God did not leave the throne of heaven empty when he came to the earth. When Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and he prayed to the Father, he was not looking in a mirror or, as somebody said, praying to his chest. Okay? God was everywhere and God was uniquely in the incarnation, in the man of Jesus Christ at the same time. Also, let me say this. It's common among us to say things like, God robed himself in flesh or things of that nature. Again, you get into trouble with that because that's terminology the Bible does not use. And in the words of, you know, my, my, my mentor, Brother Seagraves, God did not put on Jesus Christ the way you put on a coat. And that's what it sounds like when we say God robed himself in flesh. He did not put on a body. He became a human being fully. Completely. And he didn't just find some other normal human being. Some people's view of, of the oneness is, well, Jesus just had more Holy Ghost than we do. He was a complete human that had extra Holy Ghost. That's also insufficient. God became humanity. I didn't read the passage, but in Acts it says, uh, take care of the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. God, spirit doesn't have blood. God bought the church with the blood of Jesus. The blood of this man is the blood of God. The flesh of Jesus is the flesh of God. God became a man fully, completely with everything that it means to be a human being, yet did not diminish his divinity one bit. But in becoming human, as a human, he had limitations. Like I said, there were things he did not know. There were things he could not do. He had the limitations of being a human being. That's and the mystery. That's the mystery. Yeah. How can that be? I don't know. But that's the mystery. That's what the Bible says. And that's, that's where I'll... A lot of times, let me also add this. Trinitarianism and many, many other doctrines that get into error. What they do is they take something that is a mystery and they try to explain the mystery. Okay? They try to take something that the Bible says that, you know... And develop it further and say, well, if this is true, then this is true. And if this is true, then this is true. And they, they come up with this complex thing that is so far removed from what the Bible actually says. Instead of just stopping where the Bible stops. And saying, I can say this, but beyond that, I can't say exactly how God. The Bible didn't tell me those answers. But we want to figure everything out and explain everything. And I think that's what happened in the early church. Again, where they're making, mixing, I'm sorry, Greek philosophy and ideas. And, and, you know, they wanted answers for everything. I mean, that's how they operated. And so they tried to explain things that the Bible does not explain. And in doing so, they went beyond things that the Bible says and actually got so far away that they actually went into error. So... We don't go back to a certain point in church history as apostolics. That's why we call ourselves apostolics. We go back to the time of the apostles 
to the New Testament. Uh, in fact, I mentioned earlier, you know, talking to one of my uh, professors in seminary, and I said, I says, you know what? If um, his view basically is that, well, uh, Peter and Paul were naive, or that they, you know, they. The, 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 the theology that they had was primitive theology. And, uh, you know, to me, that's a little bit arrogant to <laughs> look at, you know, the, the guys who wrote the New Testament and say that that's primitive. But I says, you know what? If they were naive, I'm happy being naive or I'm happy being primitive. If it was good enough for Peter and Paul and I didn't have to wait 300 years for all of these Greek philosophers to come and explain things, you know, it's sufficient we don't need to go beyond what God has said. And in my view, it's not just that, well, you know, that uh, we have less. I think, I mean, Peter and Paul had a much greater revelation of who Jesus is than any, you know, person who came many, many years later and only studied their writings and tried to explain it. I'm sorry, I just reject that. But that's, that's the perspective of the professor and of many of those that hold to this ideology is that these are things that the church developed, and who are we to reject them? I'm sorry, let me also add this. Um, another way to, to respond you know, to their view is, um, unless you're a Catholic, okay, if you're not a Catholic, if you're a Protestant, if you're a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal, we all agree that somewhere along the way in church history, the church, I'm saying the... What, the institution that became the Catholic Church, somewhere along the way, we got away from what the Bible says. I mean, that's where the Reformation started. Martin Luther saying, I don't read about these indulgences in Scripture. And he took his thesis and nailed it to the door, and that started the Protestant Reformation, and that's how we all escaped the Catholic Church. So unless you're going to be Catholic, we all agree somewhere along the way we, they, they got away from the original truth. The difference between us and the Trinitarians is we just go back a little bit further. You guys, you follow me on that? They go back to these councils in early church history, and that's where they, that's where they say, this is true, but after that, you know, the church messed up, and they added all these things, and worshiping Mary, and idols, and all kind of stuff. But they go back to this point in church history. We just go back further. We say... Well, the church got into error sooner than you thought. You know, you read, you know, the writings of Paul and he's saying already there were people teaching other doctrines and warning the church to teach no other doctrine. Even if somebody writes a letter and claims it was from me, it was happening in their day. The book of Colossians, there was a big heresy that was going through that he had to write and respond to. False doctrine coming into the church. There's all kinds of warning about false doctrine in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, too. And in the Old Testament. So are you surprised that 300 years after the time of Jesus, that they would be teaching something that is not found in Scripture? Why would you think that this is the correct thing? Again, that's a mystery to me. So, okay, now I think I've covered all the bases. Any other questions? Oh, yes, sir. Jesus, even uh, in the flesh, mm -hmm. he knew some stuff. Okay. Uh, he knew when uh, uh, when he chose the people, the disciples. Okay. He knew. Let me. Th this this is how this 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 is how this was presented to me. Um, again, from Brother Seagraves, 
He said, we believe, because the Bible clearly shows Jesus is limited. There were things he did not know. There were things he could not do. He took upon limitations, but we see he walked on water. He did miracles. This is the way it was told to me. Yes, he had all power, but he did not use that. The things that Jesus did, he didn't do this. Let me be clear. We believe Jesus was God, but the miracles and these things, he did not do these things as God, but as a man anointed by the spirit of God. Because he told the disciples, oh, you think this is cool? I'm paraphrasing. Greater works than this will you do. He told them, all the stuff that I've done that you think is, you can do bigger stuff than this. And he gave them the ability and says, go, heal the sick, raise the dead. They had the ability to do the same miracles that he did. So this, this, was how, this is how it was explained to me, is that we do not look at the miracles of Jesus to say, um, this is how we know Jesus is God, because he did these things that only God can do. But that he did these things as a man anointed by God. Now, when they said, give us the proof that you are who you say you are, he said, well, that's the resurrection. You know, he gave them all kind of signs that he was from God, that God was with him, that God was using him. But the ultimate sign was just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. So I'll be in the belly of the earth, you know, in the heart of the earth only three days. The resurrection is the proof ultimately in who he was. So, but I don't know, brother, that, you know, that's how that was presented to me. And it kind of makes sense. Um, that he, and I, I should have read it, but Philippians two, I'll read it quick. I'm still safe, right? It's, oh, it's two minutes to nine according to that clock. Philippians two. Yes. This is the, the great humbling of Jesus. This is, this passage is called the kenosis passage because, um, the Greek word is, uh, Kenosis, which means he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Philippians 2, start at verse um, 5. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, he did not consider this place of being equal with God, a thing to be grasped or to be held onto. He released, he let go of the appearance of being equal with God. Verse seven, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, because he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess, all that good stuff. So, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being becoming a genuine human being. You have time, go back and read that passage slowly and look at every word. But... In becoming a man, he emptied himself, not of power, not of divinity. He didn't, he didn't, you know, put his divinity on the shelf and he was no longer God. But in, 
in, in, in, in deciding to come and live in a human body and operate as a man and live as a man, he took upon those limitations. That's why there were things he did not know. As a man. Now, as a man anointed by God, he was able to do miracles and things like that. Okay? But again, he told the disciples, greater works than this will you do. So. Does that answer, brother? A little bit? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, uh, the thing is, uh, you see, uh, Jesus... Uh, Let me see. Uh, oh, Jesus has uh, everything that he did. He did is to complete what is wrote from him about okay. him. Right, right. So yeah, he, he did everything. What is uh, what they was prophesied about? Right, him. right. So that's why uh, Peter one time he wanted to defend Jesus. Right, and he told them, "Right, how is gonna could be?" Uh, yeah, this needs to happen. It yeah. was meant to be. Yeah, so. which gets back into the predestination stuff, brother. Which I'll let you handle that next week. <laughs> okay. Anybody else, brother Bernabe? Preguntas? No. It's claro. Okay. Excelente. Excelente. Claro como el agua. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> okay, brother Jason. Dismiss us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this service, this study. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to allow us to grow in knowledge and wisdom. Um, we give you praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you and we'll see you Sunday.